Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Daniel Waltz. Uh, me and my wife Katrina have been coming here uh, since November 2021, and uh, we, we serve with the uh, Way Kids. And um, so, yeah, as Josh said, uh, reading Psalm 14. 1 through 7, and it's, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they do vile deeds, there is no one who does good, the Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God, all have turned away, all alike, all have become corrupt, there is no one who does good, not even one, will evil evildoers Never understand. They consume my people as they consume bread, for they do not call on the Lord. Then they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Father, we just ask that you continue to lead us in worship through your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, you may have a seat. Thank you, Daniel. Take that from you. And thank you, Daniel, for serving in Way Kids. Praise God for those faithful men and women in Way Kids. So you guys need to be more excited about that. That's an amazing ministry that we have in and Jenny, I apologize. I don't want to mess up your whole stand here. All right. You guys ready for this? We'll see. Psalm 14. And so Psalm 14 will also be in Romans 1. So if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, you guys can turn to both those things. But uh, we'll have them on the screen as well. And it's always good to have your own Bibles. And so we're continuing this series, Summer in the Psalms. And so today we'll be in Psalm 14. We've seen Psalm 1, Psalm 3, today Psalm 14. And if you're taking notes, you can title this sermon, Foolishness of Faith. Foolishness of Faith. And so as I think over the last, I mean, years and years now, and I know you guys have seen this, a lot of things have changed over the years. I mean, just think about cell phone. Isn't that been crazy how much that's changed over the recent history? I remember my mom, it was amazing. They had a cell phone, but it came in a big bag, right, that you put in the car. And what's even more amazing, I never saw it used because we couldn't afford it. Couldn't afford this big old bag and a phone, but nobody could afford actually using the thing. But how far we've come even since then. I was watching a show the other night and it reminded me, you know, when you didn't know something in the past and you had to get information, we'd go to this thing called the library. Anybody ever heard of one of those? And they had these things called books. We actually like search them. And now what do we do? It's at our fingertips, right? On phones, are we at our voice? Hey Siri. Like last night, our kids were trying to do it. We had a dinner conversation and trying to find out what this, what a, anyway, I'll, I'll save the details. But our kids were yelling for Siri and Siri was getting all confused and it was a thing. But we do that. We have knowledge at our fingertips. I remember, man, when the uh, be kind, rewind phraseology would never go away, right? Would think that would have been around until Jesus returned. Blockbuster video went out, it was, just, it was amazing. Thought that would never happen. Blockbuster video went out of business. 
So a lot's changed over the years, but there's been a lot that's remained the same. And one consistent thing over the years, which we see here, is it's, there's always been a people who's always said, there is no God. Always. That's what we see here in Psalm 14. There is no God, or there's no God. But as we see our culture continue to push that way, it's actually gotten different. This phrase has gotten different. We've taken it a step further and said, not only is there no, there's no God, but actually you're a fool if you think there is a God. That's where we're at now. And the movement that seemed to really accelerate this change from it's foolish to believe there's a God to now it's foolish that you're a fool if you think there's a God was the age of reason, or maybe you know it better as the period of enlightenment. This really fueled this change. They amplified the concept of a world with calculated regularity, striving to prove that rigorous mathematical reasoning offered the means, independence of God's revelation, of establishing truth. At the same time, the idea of a universe as a mechanism governed by a few simple and discoverable laws had a subversive effect on the central concepts of Christianity, that being a personal God and individual salvation. In other words, the universe seemed to determine its own course without God's intervention. This is what stemmed from this period, this movement. In other words, reason had become its own religion. That's exactly what happened. That's what was birthed out of this. And I'll say all this, I'm going to go down the road here in a second, but to be clear, intelligence isn't evil, right? Pursuing knowledge isn't some kind of no-no. Those are good things. They're good things as long as you're pursuing truth. They become bad when we try to pursue truth and don't like it and try and twist it into our own truth. Make sense? Try and make it do something that it wasn't supposed to do. And what we need to know is truth is not relative. It's either truth or it isn't. There's no gray area. That's why it's true or not. And as we talk through this this morning, I want to be reminded that there is a war being waged for our minds. So be careful to what we embrace. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. The mind is a battlefield. So be careful what we let in. Evaluate those things. And as we've seen throughout the years, there's been many false religions that have come from a thought and then eventually been embraced as true. And you can see all over the place. I mean, very recently I was just looking at John Koresh, Waco, better known. This tragedy there several years ago now. But he established this truth that people followed that he was the Lamb of God from Revelation 5. And so people followed that and led to destruction because they had no concept of what truth is. And so they swallowed it and followed him and led to a lot of people dying. I mean, you can count to all kinds of other false religions and cults, but one that's, I think, more subtle that we don't realize, and I'm going to be careful, so just hold on, save your emails for a second, okay? Just saying. Is the religion of science. You're like, oh, wait a second. I'm not talking about science in itself is bad. Science is really, really good. 
As a matter of fact, I actually in foolishness to believe that the Bible and science do not contradict one another. Crazy, right? But the way we've taken science, we've taken science to, with a, as a weapon to, to prove something that maybe isn't true a lot of times. So we twist it with an agenda. Hear what I'm saying? I'm not saying all science is bad. I'm saying how you use it can be bad. Are we following so far? All right, hopefully we'll clarify as we go. But as we see this, as we know science now, and as some channels that we've taken it, we've taken science and ultimately to make ourselves our own God. Because we want to say there's no God. And so if you don't want there to be a God, because I don't want to be accountable to a higher standard or a higher authority, I have to do something else to disprove God. And so let's do this thing. Create our own belief system is what we've done. So let me step on some toes since while we're here, I might as well do this, right? The theory of the Big Bang, the theory of evolution. You know what theory means? It's an idea. So it is. In the simplest form, an idea about something. You know what overrides in scientific worlds a theory? A law. A law is proven. A theory is a thought. Right? Let's keep it simple. Basically, that's what it is, right? Everybody with me so far? So the theory of the Big Bang says that absolutely nothing became absolutely everything operating in perfect, cohesive harmony. That's what it says. Man, that's a big jump of faith. I'm just saying. That's a good belief system. It's a, it's a huge jump of faith, bigger faith than I have. Because then you have the law of biogenesis, which says only life can produce life. But yet we don't measure these things up. So Big Bang Theory says dead matter became living. The law says life can only produce life. Take a step forward, or further, theory of evolution. So you got the Big Bang that says, you know, we were initially slime, is what happens. So what we know as human species now, right, us, was initially slime. So the theory of evolution says we need millions and millions of years. They're needed for these things to have us evolve from happenstantial slime to evolve into homo sapiens, which is funny because that word means actually wise human. Not so wise. This is really interesting, and if it's not to you, it's to me, so I got the microphone, so you're just going to listen. So, this is interesting. In 1980, May, in Washington, Mount St. Helens erupted, this volcano, it erupted. And so what they did, using the, the dating systems that we have in place, they took a sample from Mount St. Helens, and they shipped it to Cambridge, Massachusetts, to test how old this sample of the aftermath was, knowing how old it was, but just to show the inconsistency and the inaccuracy of the dating systems that we have. So they gave it to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and gave it to his laboratory, and didn't tell them the origin info of this sample. Just wanted to date it. And those, this sample from 1980 came back dating somewhere between 350,000 and 2.5 million years old. And this is a dating system that we use. Why am I saying all this? I'm saying science isn't bad. How we use it can be. And this is stuff we're just swallowing up because this is what we've been taught over and over again. Is these things are true. These things are true. These theories are laws, and they're not. So what I'm saying is be careful what we fully embrace. So all that saying, this is what we're getting at this morning, this one question. Is it foolish to believe there is a God, or is it more foolish not to? 
Which brings us to verse 1 of Psalm 14. It simply says, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. In other words, it's foolish to say there's no God is the point of this. I know we talked about last week a little bit. There's one word we see over and over in the book of Psalms, Selah. We talked about how we're combining a couple thoughts, meaning to, to pause, to ponder, and eventually to praise. And so what we're going to do here, we're going to take this Selah seg into pause and ponder, Psalm 14, and I believe it'll turn into praise as we look at the truth of Psalm 14 through the lens of Romans chapter 1. Okay, we're just going to do this for a minute, so hang on with me. And so we're going to put this on the screen, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, if you're there, that's great also. also. It says this, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his individual attributes, that is his internal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what has been made. As a result, people are without excuse. So what all that's saying is that just by looking, you can tell there is a God. That's what it says. By looking around. I don't think you believe me. I'm going to give you some examples. So let me give you some good, this my, my favorite examples of many, many examples you could use. So some of my favorite animals, a giraffe. Right? Let's go giraffe for a second. So the giraffe has long neck, has a brain on top of that long neck, how does the blood get up to that brain on top of the long neck? He has a big heart. That means he loves a whole bunch, right? He really cares, compassionate animal. He has this big pump, right? And so he has to pump blood up this long neck. But then when the giraffe gets thirsty, he has to drink. So what stops this giraffe from blowing out his brains every time he drinks some water? Because now gravity's working in his favor, right? He has a mechanism that... Slows down the, the blood flow. All right, follow this a step further. So now, the giraffe's drinking, the blood has stopped flowing so hard, right, Rele- relegated. And now, a lion's going to attack, attack the giraffe. So now the giraffe gets up, starts running. So what stops the giraffe from passing out because the blood flow has been hampered? What well, has a reserve in the brain, a sponge that holds blood until the blood starts pumping again? I'm going to say, isn't that incredible? It's almost like it had an intelligent designer. One more thing. So, woodpecker. So, what stops a woodpecker from knocking himself out every time he pounds on a tree? Right? I don't see woodpeckers all around the ground just knocked out cold. They have a thicker skull. And then to get into the tree, they have a long tongue. And that tr- tongue has a recoil mechanism, so it, it, re- it winds back up in his head when he's not using it. So, it winds up, winds up. I mean, it's just amazing. And so, like, you can look at different animals. They have different bugs. It's like just the proof is all around us when you see how these things, these animals are designed. But on top of that, God's crowning achievement is you. It's us. I think of how the intricacies of how we're designed. Like, you know just as well as I do, if your body's just a little off, if you're Blood saturation, oxygen content is a little off. The blood flow is a little bit off, right? You're, you're all messed up, all jacked up, right? 
if things aren't perfect in cohesiveness like they were operated to, meant to operate, you're all messed up because everything's so perfectly harmonizing itself. It's amazing. If we can just stop and look. And so what the, the theories will say is that you're an accident. Meaning you have no worth, you have no value. That's exactly what we have hooked, been hooked with and swallowed. You are a completely random accident. What God says is that you're a beautiful creation. You are made on purpose for a purpose. You have worth that's way more incredible than you ever know because your worth is rooted in who he is. You're perfectly, wonderfully, remarkably made. This is what the truth of God's word says about you. All this stuff matters. It matters what we believe as true and the standards we hold them to. The incredible design that we see could only have been by an intelligent designer, not an indescribable accident. But man's attempt to prove that there's no God is only an attempt to set ourselves up as God. That's exactly what we're doing. We don't want to be accountable. We want to do what we want. So, no, I don't believe there's a God. I see, but I'm going to do something else. So I'm going to create these systems in place. And this is a lie that we've heard from the beginning. From the creation of the world, when God made man and woman and said, don't touch the, the one tree. And the serpent, the deceiver, the liar comes and says, you know what, that's not true. God's lying. He's actually holding back from you because he knows, he knows as soon as you eat from that tree, you'll be like God. And man, that sounds pretty good. Like, I want to have some power and authority and platform. And so what did she do? It says she saw the tree and saw that it was good, it was delightful and desirable for obtaining wisdom. It's the same struggle we have today. We struggle in the same temptations, the same issues today. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's possession. It's the same thing. The same temptation, the same scam, the same lies. And so this is what we've done. If we don't like what is true, we t- twist the truth to make it true to us. Have we seen that? I mean, we could see, if we stop and look, we can see the truth being twisted to where we like it, and now we can live with that. Well, it's not true anymore if we twist it to make something that's not true, true. And so we see in Romans 1, verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And this is the scary part. God will give you what you want. He will give you the desires of your heart. In verse 25, or verse 28, it says, Because they did not think it was worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. That's what Psalm 14 says. The fool says in his heart there's no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. And hear me when I say this, everyone worships a God, everyone. Because everyone, we were, commit, we were created meant to worship. That's what we were created for is to worship. So we all created God. It's just who, what God are you worshiping? The one true God who created the heavens and the earth? Or some false God, which Psalm 14 points out, is the God of yourself if you say there's no God. There's someone you worship. There's someone that we worship. That's what the enlightenment really fueled and embraced this notion of you are your own God. You determine 
You do these things. You make things better. And the whole thing was that they thought that humanity can improve and make change for the better through rational change. And my question for us is as we look at this core concept of humanity can make things better and the core concept of evolution is that we're improving, is that true? I mean, look around. Are things increasingly better? I'll answer, I don't think so. Am I alone? I look around, I don't feel like things are better. Are there some good things? Yes, by God's common grace, there are some good things. But things are not getting better, and that's exactly what Jesus said. Things will get worse before he comes back. And we see it. If we slow down, open up our eyes, things are not getting better, but we humans are making things worse. Psalm 14.1 says, there's no one who does good. Verse 3, all have turned away and become corrupt. And so Romans 3, the Apostle Paul quotes these verses and goes a step further in Romans 3.23. says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, because of what you have done, what you get back, what you've earned by your works, is death. That's what we see from the first sin, death, physical death came in, but death means an eternal separation from God, an eternal hell, because God is eternally righteous. I know we don't like talking about that, but it's true, and we need to see there's consequences for our actions. Knowing that there is a God who is perfectly perfect, knowing that there is a God who is justly just, righteously righteous, should lead us to this uh uh-oh realization. That means if you've been following yourself as God and saying there is no God, there should be an uh uh-oh moment because there is a God. And that changes everything. And here in Psalm 14, the psalmist is looking forward to the day when God, who himself is a refuge, will fully and finally rescue and restore his people. That's verse 5 through 7. It says, Then they, they being those people who say there's no God, will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And here the psalmist is looking forward to the promised Savior who would come and solve the most severe problem in the world. And what we see clearly in Psalm 14 is a severe problem, the most severe problem in the world is sin. Sin itself. And so who would that Savior be? Well, he would come and have named Jesus. John the Baptist Maybe better known as John the Baptizer. It's not like we had Marty the Methodist and Pete the Presbyterian. But John, when he saw Jesus, he took everybody's attention and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the question is, how does Jesus take away the sin of the world? Well, Jesus says in John 3.16, For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. That is, will not be separated from God any longer, but will be restored and have life in the life giver, that is God Himself, through what I will do. So we see there is a God. I'm just saying, it's so clear, that's not even debatable. There is a God. But then the debate rages about Jesus. Right? Let me tell you, Jesus was someone, and He was a someone. Jesus was so incredibly important. All the major world religions have a thought about Jesus. Did you guys realize this? They all think something about Jesus. 
So that should lead us down the path of, we better think something about Jesus. So what is true about Jesus? I mean, Judaism sees Jesus as he was a teacher. He had disciples, did some miracles, claimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified and reportedly, reportedly was resurrected. Islam says he's a wise teacher, a prophet, miracle worker. He ascended into heaven, and they believe he'll come back and judge. That's Islam. Hinduism believes Jesus was a wise teacher, maybe even one god of many gods. Buddhism believes Jesus was an enlightened man, a holy man, a wise teacher. They all have a thought about Jesus. So what is true about Jesus? If you've been around here any amount of time, I quote C.S. Lewis quite a bit. This quote is my favorite quote because he nails it about Jesus. C.S. Lewis writes, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level of the man who says he's a poached egg or else a devil of hell, but you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. It's true. Who's Jesus? So we see there is a God. We have all sinned and separated ourselves from God, yet God has made a way back to himself through himself by paying the sin penalty himself. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus says, I am the way, not a way, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so in the moments before he would be betrayed and ultimately crucified, he was in the garden praying, the garden of Gethsemane. He was praying, and he says this, he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And what he was talking about this cup is God's wrath being able to pour it out on all sin, on all humanity. He was about to take on himself. So he's saying, if, if there's any other way for this to be accomplished, for the sin payment, for all people's sin to be paid, let that happen. If there's any other way, if Oprah was all right, right, all roads lead to heaven, it seems like an awful waste of my blood. It would seem like an awful waste of my blood if everyone is inherently good anyway. That's an awful waste of my blood. It's an awful waste of my blood if good intentions are good enough. It's an awful waste of my blood if someone can obey the Ten Commandments, align their chakras, obey the five pillars, reincarnate enough times. It's an awful waste of my blood. But he says this, yet not my will, but yours be done. And you know what God's will was? To send Jesus to the cross. Why? Because there was no other way for our sin to be paid and so that someone could come and be reestablished with the God who created them to have a relationship with them in the first place. And Jesus on the cross in the moments that before he would give up his spirit, one of his last words he says, it is finished. It's a beautiful word to tell us that. 
means the debt has been paid in full. They used to stamp it on receipts when someone paid off their debt to Telestai. Now we see everyone who comes by faith and somehow, some way, Jesus' blood counted for me and I'm cleansed and remade new and restored because of what he did. Sins are forgiven. I'm a new creation. We have the stamp of Tetelestai. Our debt has been paid in full, the debt that we couldn't pay. You know, it's crazy. At this moment, when Jesus gives up his life, gives up his spirit, in the temple there was this veil that separated the people of God from the presence of God. 60 feet tall, four inches thick, this veil. And the moment that Jesus gave up his life, it says the veil was torn. Not from bottom to top like we did something to tear it. From top to bottom. I think that matters. I think it matters because God did what only God can do. And our response is a right worship of him. Opening a way up for his people to have access to his presence. And so when we come together and we sing, and we're asking God to fill this place, he does. Because of what Christ Jesus did for us. We don't have the special person to pray through. We have direct access to the God of all creation, who desires us to come to him as Father. Jesus has done that for us. And so when we say all this, it's amazing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to us who are being saved. So I wonder even today, how much of this is foolishness to you? And how much of it is refreshing realizing Jesus is worth my praise? See, so many say it's foolish because it's too easy. Surely there has to be more. Surely I have to do something. You mean all I got to do is believe? Yeah, pretty easy for you. You know who it wasn't easy for? Jesus. That's what we miss. It wasn't easy for Jesus. Jesus did what we couldn't do. The other argument is, surely it's foolish. You're putting all your faith into an old book? Yeah. Yeah, I am. This old book that we call the Bible was written by over 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years, over three continents, and yet one harmonious and completely consistent story from Genesis to Revelation. Yeah, yeah. Let me put my faith in that book. The same book that Jesus filled over 300 messianic prophecies through his birth, life, death, and resurrection. Yeah. The same book that if you use any kind of measurement that we do for any other studies on ancient articles, this book has proven to be way more reliable based on the quantity of the manuscripts and the proximity of the manuscripts to the events. Proves this reliability? Yeah, this book is what I'm putting my faith on, realizing this is the Word of God. It is true. So yeah, maybe foolishness to some. But for others, we realize it's the power of God to save and to secure believers in Him. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. This is the good news that there is a God. But to be good news, there has to be bad news. The bad news is that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short and make things worse. We can't do anything good. And Isaiah 64 says our good deeds are like filthy rags. But God did something for us. 
Jesus, living the life that we couldn't live, the perfect life, to die the death that we deserved, raised on the third day, conquering sin, conquering death, so that everyone who believes in him has eternal life. This is the good news. We can do nothing of ourselves as God's grace alone, giving us something we don't deserve that established our faith. And so as you hear this, if you're an unbeliever, you need to consider, is this true? Because if this is true, it changes everything. For believers, this needs to be re-energizing, remembering why we praise God for who He is, what He's done. I think we get complacent and grow numb to what Jesus actually did for us. There was a point when you first got saved, man, you were all about Jesus. And so, some way along the way, we're not so much all about Jesus anymore. Now it's about my family, my work, I got my schedule to keep, I got these different things. I'll try and sprinkle in Jesus on Sunday morning for an hour, a couple times a month. It's, it's summertime, right? Like, I want us to be re-energized with Jesus and realize how much dependence we have on Jesus, that we need Jesus. In this Western community that's very affluent, we don't need a whole lot of things. The biggest barrier is affluency because we are very comfortable. We as a church need to remember we need Jesus. Like, could your joy still be there if you lose your job? Will your joy still be there if you lose your family? If everything got stripped away, would your joy still be there because you have Jesus? If your answer is no, then you need to return because Jesus is enough. Are those things great? Would you be happy? Absolutely not. But Jesus is enough. And we need to get to a point to where we need Jesus. I've been praying for our church to have a heart to pray because prayer shows your dependency on God. So you look at your prayer life, and I'll show you how much dependency you have on God. I'm just saying, man. The more you're dependent on God, the more you can pursue Him. I was talking to, to Mark this morning. He just reminded me that, man, God puts you in an area to where you don't know what to do. Because only then you depend on God. And he starts moving. But we don't ever see God move because we're comfortable. Man, I'm not anti-comfort. I'm anti-comfort being our God. But the good news is, Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's amazing. Romans 2, 4 says us that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. It's amazing to me. God is so kind. And so we often hear, you know, repent or you're going to hell. And as true as that may be, if you're only repenting so you don't go to hell, you're missing God. You're missing his kindness. You're missing his love. I'm sure one story, because now we're getting long, we're running to lunch, I realize that, but it's important. Because how we tell the gospel, how we believe the gospel matters a whole lot. Because if you're living in fear of hell, and like, yeah, I'll take the fire insurance over going to hell, right? It's the wrong, that's not faith. That's not God-focused, that's me-centered. I was at a kid's camp, and the guy that was giving the message basically said, if this building was to collapse and you don't have Jesus, you're going to hell. Who wants to accept Jesus? Would you know that about every hand in that room? Including mine, I'm like, I think I know Jesus, but I just want to make sure. I'm joking, I'm joking. But is that the gospel? Is that why we come to faith, so we get out of hell free? There's truth in that, but if that's why you're coming to Jesus, you're coming to all wrong. As soon as you see God, who loved us so that we can in turn love him, 
It changes everything. If you're having a hard time living for Jesus the Monday through Saturday, I bet it's because your love for God has diminished. Reignite that love for Him and see what God does in you and through you. Because all of a sudden, you will devote whatever it takes, whatever it is. All I am, all that I have is yours because of how amazing you are. I'm not scared of hell. I want more of God. We've got to get to that point. So I'm wondering where you guys are. Like maybe some of us just need to be recommitted in our faith. Because we, we stray. We wander. Our hearts are prone to it, right? We sing it. Maybe we need to get back on track. Jesus, I need you. For others, you've been debating, is this Jesus thing real? Now I'm praying that he just interrupts your life this morning. For others, start, it's time to start living for Jesus. We mention this all the time, but the first step to live for Jesus is biblical baptism. If you haven't been baptized yet, that's the first thing. Identifying with Jesus in baptism. Start there. Whatever God's doing, we're going to have just a time of response for you to pray. And you settle those things that God's laying in your heart in this moment. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. I'm going to allow some quiet time for you to respond in prayer. And our band's going to come back up after that. We're going to sing and worship, but we're going to have a prayer team to the side. And if you're recommitting your life to following Jesus, we want to pray for you. We're here to walk alongside you. If you're coming to Jesus for the first time or have questions about Jesus, we want to pray for you. We want to walk alongside you. If you're ready to be baptized, we're ready, man. We want to pray for you, walk alongside you. You weren't meant to do this faith journey alone. You have a faith family all around you. Let's pray. Let's respond to what God's putting on our hearts in this moment, in this place. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. Just a reminder that you are true, that you are still God, that you're unchanging, that you're faithful, you're full of grace and truth, you're compassionate and kind and patient with us. We thank you for bringing us here, Father, and I just ask right now that you move in a mighty way in each of us as we just desire to focus on you, to see you, to experience you more. I pray you just refresh our faith, to encourage our hearts and our minds with your presence and your spirit. Lord, help us to walk boldly in you, confidently in you. No matter what comes at us, our circumstances change, but you do not. So right now, I pray that you just reveal when your goodness to us. And Father, if there's things in our lives where we have followed these things over following you, if we have strayed in our, our journey after you, if we have sinned and fallen short, which we all have, Father, I pray you reveal those things. Maybe we have some blind areas in our life that blind to some sin that we weren't aware of, Father. I pray that you reveal those things. And by the kindness of your Spirit, lead us to repentance, to change, to see that and turn away and follow you. Or whatever you're doing, Father, I pray that you just generate a spirit of repentance and responsiveness to your Spirit's leading. Father, continue to lead us. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. 
We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.